as we prepare for our marriage conference in two weeks, October 5th and 6th at the Doubletree Hotel in downtown Tulsa. If you haven't yet RSVP'd for that, <clears throat> I don't know if you still can, but try it anyway. <laughs> Trinityofalso.com slash marriage. And um, Scott will let you know if you're in. We hope all of you can be there. We're talking about the elephants in the room. We're talking about those issues in our family that need to be dealt with that are very hard to deal with because <clears throat> some of them are scary, frankly. Some of them cause us to pick at scabs and very deep wounds, and that's not easy to do. And so we need courage to do that. And the gospel gives us that courage. So let's take one more step in addressing the elephants in the room. And we're going to continue this week the sermon that we started last week on what kind of parents does God raise. So are you willing to take that step with me? Let's look together at Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Romans chapter 12. Would you stand if you're able and willing and hear the Shema, the central piece of Deuteronomy and the teachings where Moses is revealing again to the second generation of Israel, standing on the edge of the land. He reminds them of his covenant faithfulness to his parents who died in the wilderness. And then in the bulk of the book in 13 through 26, he reminds them of all the laws by which he wants them to live. And he tells them, these are the commands I have for you in chapters 4 to 11. And they center on this very important section of Scripture called the Shema. Listen in Hebrew. Hear. Hear now the word of the Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Verse 14. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst. He's a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you. And he destroy you from off the face of the earth. And then the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as, living as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. Father, would you take our hearts now and as you help us think about parenting and the kind of parents that you want to raise us to be, oh, would you shape us around the mold and image of your son. Thank you that you are the ultimate parent. And discipline us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We said last week that parenting is um, no doubt the holiest and most harrowing experience of our lives. 
in marriage, you get to pick your partner. You have all kinds of criteria by which you determined if I should marry this person. And marriage has got its own extravagant challenges, as we'll talk about together in two weeks at the marriage conference. But in having children and in being parents, no matter what your criteria may be, God did not ask your opinion, did he? He gave you your children complete with raging hormones and attitudes and pimples and screams in the middle of the night and dirty diapers and a big picture to you of yourself. It's a full-blown sanctification kit. It's like God gave you exactly what he knew you needed for you to grow and become more and more like him. We know that parenting is beautiful, and it's beautiful because of what it does in you and what it does in me. Parenting is no doubt the holiest and most harrowing experience of our lives. And you never stop being a parent. George W. Bush, uh, when he was president, went to visit his parents' home. And, uh, and Laura Bush tells the story. They got up early one morning about 6.15. And um, uh, Laura says that, that, that George W. poured himself uh, uh, a cup of coffee. And, of course, his father, George H.W. Bush, um, and Barbara, of course, were there. And they were, they, had, they were already up. And George gets his cup of coffee, and he goes into his living room, and he puts his feet up on the coffee table. And his mother says, take your feet off my coffee table. And George H.W. Bush is sitting there watching this, and he goes, dear, he's the president of the United States. <laughs> and Barbara Bush, in the only the kind of canny way that she can, she goes, well, he may be the president of the United States, but in this house, he's my son. Get your feet off the coffee table, Junior. <laughs> You never stop being a parent, do you? Whether you have a toddler or your child is, goes on to be the president of the United States, you never stop being a parent. And so to be the kind of parent that God wants to raise is a journey that you're always on. And if you're here and you don't have children of your own, if you're a member of this church, you have children. They're all back in Trinity Kids. And we should look at those children with as much earnest zeal for the gospel work in their heart as you look for your for the gospel to work in your own children's lives. So this sermon is for all of us who are members of our church who long to shepherd and nurture children in a way that God calls us to do so. What kind of parent does God raise? That's the question that we're after. You can never be a good parent until you realize that you're first a child. That's what we talked about last week, wasn't it? You're not God's tool to change little sinners in your house so much as God is using parenting to change the biggest sinner in the house, who is you. And unless you have the light of self-awareness, parents will never know that they are a child of the Father. And if you do not get that, then parenting is going to be a grind for you. You teach them by being self-aware of your own need for teaching and for correction and reproof and training in righteousness. You teach them with a heart that is humbled that you should even be called a child of God. And if you think that your parenting is um, the reason why your kids turned out great, well, I have some really good news for you. You're wrong. 
And it's good news for you because it was by the grace of God who overcame all of your shortcomings as parents and nurtured and shepherded your children well. And if you have children who have run from the Lord and that wound is deep in your heart, I have also some good news for you. God runs after our children better than we could ever dream. And He is not done in their lives. So, if we're going to be the kind of parent that God raises, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 and let's learn two more things. First, God the Father raises parents who prepare their children for mission. Look at what the text says. Moses called the children of Israel together, the second generation, in the wilderness, and he gave them their mission. And he says it here in verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's the mission. And then later in verses 14 and 15, he states the same mission in the negative. He says, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, is a jealous God. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you should not go after the gods of the world. The Apostle Paul puts it in his own words when he says, Do not be conformed by the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's not that you should just find that your child's mission or your mission as a parent is something that you can just check the box for and move on. Paul says it's a worldview through which you view everything in light of the life, death, resurrection, and glory of Jesus. You're you're transformed by the renewal of your mind, and therefore it leads you not to live according to the pattern of the world. And Israel was not only to be devoted to God in, in, in some ways generally, but they were to be devoted to God specifically. Paul said that they would know God's perfect, acceptable, pleasing will for them, what is excellent, that they would know God's will for them. And God puts it in generic terms. I mean, Paul puts it in generic terms there because God's will for each of our lives is slightly different. Red and yellow, black and white. We're all precious in his sight. Introverts, extroverts, those who love, love, love to be able to serve and greet people at the front door and those who, oh my gosh, I would never want to do that. People who serve behind the scenes, people who are out front. We all have particular gifts. Some of us have... um, talents, and we have uh, personality. We all have talents. We all have personalities. Thank you. Some of us have, uh, have gifts that help us become fantastic engineers. Some of us have gifts that help us become amazing doctors. Some of us have uh, various gifts, one body, many parts. And so Paul gives us pictures of this in places like 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and Ephesians 4, where we all work together. Each of us uniquely work together to accomplish the specific mission to which he has called you and to me. And it's important for us to recognize that because as parents who are being raised by God, we are raising our kids to be the best thems that they can be. And as much as we may want them to be little us's, the world doesn't need more us's. It needs more them's. And so we have to die to our idolatry of what we wanted our children to be and to let them be the best little thems they can possibly be. And to help them do that, sometimes we have to teach them how to be on mission. 
and be bold. And when you know what your mission is, there's no stopping you from living that out. Bob Goff wanted to be a lawyer. He was raised. Parents recognized his litigious nature. And he graduated from San Diego State University and wanted to go on to the to, uh, uh, University of San Diego Law School. There was only one problem. He didn't get in. So he goes to the dean of the law school and he says to her, Sir, my name is Bob Goff. I applied for this class in law school. I did not get in. But if you let me in, I'll be the best student in this class. Just say the word, go get my books, and you won't regret it. And the dean, of course, politely you know, explained to him that it was a very difficult year of applications. There were so many competitive uh, applications, and, and we, are, we are so sorry. We encourage you to apply next year. And so um, he showed him out the door, and Bob uh, sat down in the hallway and waited. The dean came out the door later that day, and Bob Goff stood up and said, Sir, my name is Bob Goff. I applied for this class and did not get in, but I will be the best. You just say the word, and I'll go get my books, and I'll be the best student in this class. The dean says, Sorry, sir, and you should go home. The next morning, the dean walks into his office, and his secretary had politely put out a chair because there was a young man waiting for that dean that morning when the secretary got there. His name was Bob Goff. She gave him a glass of water, and he sat in a chair, and the dean came in, and he said to her, he said to him, Sir, my name is Bob Goff. I did not get into this class. But if you let me in, I'll be the best student in the class. Just say, go get my books. Day three, Bob Goff is sitting outside the office. Every time that dean leaves his office, he said the same thing. Day four. Day five, the students show up. And as Bob tells the story, all these undeserving pricks go into class the first day with their books. And he said, I sat there, watched all these guys go to law school in my dream. Day six, he's still outside that dean's office. Day seven, day seven, day three of class, the dean walks up, and Bob stands up, and he says, Bob, go get your books. And so Bob goes, and he enters law school, and he graduates top of his class. Bob had a mission, and he had the boldness and the courage to fight for it. What's your mission? What are you called to do? I'm not asking you what your occupation is. I'm calling that beneath your occupations, what is it that drives you? What is it that drives you? My calling, I feel like my calling is to equip others to use their gifts in ways that honor Him. That's my calling. And I'll do that as a pastor. I'll do that if I'm one day doing something else in ministry, though I don't ever dream of that. That's my calling. My calling is to equip you to use your gifts in a way that bring honor and glory to Him. Whatever your personalities and tendencies might be. I love doing that. What's your calling? Betty Ann Walters had a calling. It was, there was one thing in the world that she loved. She grew up 
And she only had one thing, and that was her brother. She and her brother only had each other. Their parents were gone. They were drug addicts. They'd abandoned them. Betty Ann Walters, uh, Waters and her brother would break into people's homes, not to steal something, but just to sit on their living room couch and imagine what it would be like to have a home. As they grew up together, her brother was wrongly convicted and sent to prison. So Betty Ann Waters went on to get her GED, got her undergrad degree, and Betty Ann Waters went to law school herself. Betty Ann Waters worked for 16 years to get through school, to get through undergrad, to get through law school with one electrifying vision. When she graduated from law school, she began to work on the only case that mattered to her. And the day that she was able to free her brother from prison for being wrongly convicted was the last day she ever practiced law. She had a mission, and she had a vision. What drives you? God has called us as the people of Israel to be driven by one thing, to love him and serve him with our whole heart. And the way that that expresses itself in your life will be different than the person next to you. Yes, the church is integral to that process. It's the fuel to the furnace that drives us as his people. But the expressions of that are all different. And we need to be able to see that in our children and to help fan the flame for their hearts, whatever that talent or hobby or proclivity might tend to be for them. David Brooks um, calls a man named Jordan Peterson the greatest public intellectual living right now. Some of you may know that name. He wrote a book called The Twelve Rules for Life. And men are flocking to Jordan Peterson. Meaning in life, Peterson writes, there's no chaos to confront. There's chaos to confront. There's order to establish and revivifying and evil to constrain. So get at it and quit whining. And Jordan Peterson is parenting adults all over this country because he's given them a mission and he's given them something to fight for. What drives you? What is your calling? If you don't have a mission or a calling, one is going to be given to you and one will be given to your children. Christopher Latch wrote in The Culture of Narcissism, the modern manufacturer has the job to educate the masses in the culture of consumption, convincing people to buy goods for which they are unaware of any need until the need is forcibly brought to their attention by the mass media. In a simpler time, he writes, advertising merely called attention to the product and extolled its advantages. Now it manufactures a product of its own, the consumer, perpetually unsatisfied, restless, anxious, and bored. Advertising serves not so much to advertise products as to promote consumption as a way of life. It educates the masses into an unappeasable appetite, not only for goods, but for new experiences and personal fulfillment. It upholds consumption as the answer to the age-old discontents of loneliness, sickness, weariness, lack of sexual satisfaction. At a time 
At the same time, it creates new forms of discontent peculiar to the modern age. He continues, it plays seductively on the malaise of the industrialized civilization. Is your job boring or meaningless? Does it, have, does it leave you with feelings of futility and fatigue? Is your life empty? Well, consumption promises to fill your anxious void. Listen, if you don't have a mission for your children, one will be given to them. Paul Nystrom, who is an early student of modern marketing, noted that the industrialized civilization gives rise to a philosophy of futility to indoctrinate the children of the modern world. A pervasive fatigue, a disappointment with achievements that finds an outlet in changing the more superficial things in life to be the things in which fashion reigns. The tired worker, instead of attempting to change the conditions of his workplace, seeks renewal in brightening his immediate surroundings by buying something on Amazon. Do your children know your mission? Do they have a vision of what the good life really is? That's what Deuteronomy 6 tells us to do. This is Moses before his people saying, serve him. Do not let them give in to the gods of the world. And if you do not give them, moms and dads, a picture of what the beauty of the gospel can be, your children will adopt a mission all their own. Are we able to raise children who are preparing for mission? Neil Postman wrote a book about 40 years ago that was this incredible prophecy of um, our day. It's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And there's a question that he deals with at the very beginning of the book. He asked this question, is George Orwell's 1984 a better prophecy of what's going to happen in America. America is a strong, mighty, powerful world leader, but its collapse is possible, Postman writes. And if it does, if it does collapse, is George Orwell's 1984 a better picture or is Aldous Huxley's Brave New World a better description? Here's what he writes. Orwell warns that we will be overcome in 1984 by an externally imposed oppression but in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that reduce their capacities to think. Hello, Alexa. <laughs> what Orwell feared was that there would be those who would ban books, and what Huxley feared is that there would be no reason to ban books because there would be no one who would want to read one. Huxley feared that we'd become, Orwell feared we'd become a captive culture. Huxley feared that we would just become a trivial one. So how are we doing, moms and dads? Have you given your kids a vision and a mission for what they could be in light of the kingdom? We owe our children more than just the compelling vision of the American dream. Their reason to go to school and get an education is greater than just to accumulate wealth. It is to live out God's specific, fashioned mission and calling for that child's life. 
Are you praying for that for them? I know you're praying for their salvation, and we should continue to do that. Yes and amen. Oh, how we want all of our children to treasure Christ. But a corollary to that is praying that God would so use them in their life to be a picture of the gospel through all their unique attributes. Are you praying that for them now? Some of you are making ways for their 529 plan and preparing for college. With as much anxiety as you have about paying for college, you ought to have anxiety about making sure that you provide the best environment for them to flourish in their particular calling. Hallelujah. Amen. Oh, we need help to do this. The kind of parents God raised first are parents who prepare their children for mission. And to do that, we need to experience what that's like ourselves. And the furnace for that, the crucible for that is in your community groups where you're learning and showing together how you live out your particular callings in the way that your community groups don't wait for the pastors of this church to set up a mission trip or to go and serve, but they go out and they move into the areas of Tulsa that are dark and that are hard and that we serve where we're able to do that. For example, men in my Bible study on Wednesday morning, we're going to go and meet, not at Panera this week, we're going to meet at, uh, at Crossover's Clinic in North Tulsa, and we're going to take a tour of it to see the amazing work that Kent Farish and all those physicians who work in North Tulsa, almost pro bono, do, and how they've served North Tulsa. And maybe even amongst the men in our group, what prick of the heart might happen that they may be called to serve the Lord in a new and fresh way within their industry. So first, parents, are you preparing your children for mission? And second, the father raises parents who show their children the beauty of reconciliation. We spoke about this briefly last week, and we said you can never be a good parent until you first realize that you're a child of the father. And the only way that you can be a child of the father, of course, is you have a self-awareness that you do not measure up to his holy standards. But he doesn't reject you. He offers you his warm embrace because he sent his one and only son to come for you. Jesus was the elder brother who didn't stay in the house waiting for you to come home. He went and looked for you in the far country, in the incarnation, and he brought you to himself. And we are to show our children the beauty of reconciliation in three ways. Our reconciliation with God, our reconciliation with others, and our reconciliation with the world. The most beautiful picture of reconciliation, of course, is the reconciliation that we have with God. Let me give you some magic words as parents. I love you, but you're not the boss. You know, have you ever seen um, the standoff where you're in the kitchen and your child is just fighting dinner? You know what that's about? As much as, as much as they want to make it about the peas, it's not about the peas. They haven't read about nutrition. They don't know about the benefits of vegetables. They're not fighting the peas. It is a war of their autonomy against their mom and their dad. And it is something that they know by nature from birth. It is them rising up and saying, I will be the boss of this house, thank you. You know what it's like to coddle your children and to, and to um, embrace them and to read them a book and to put them down and to sing over them and to pray over them and to tuck them in 
And then as you leave the room, before you get to the door, they stand up in their crib and they scream, What is that about? That is about their fierce fight, even at a young age, for their autonomy. I will dictate when you leave this room. And parenting is a struggle to help children recognize that they, oh, for their soul's sake, they are not autonomous. And saying, I love you, but you are not the boss, is one of the most redemptive things you can say to your child. And to set boundaries for them. It's a picture of their need to be reconciled to God. Because you know what God does to us? We scream at the edge of our cribs all the time and say, this is not the life I expected to lead when I was in my 40s, 30s, 20s, 60s. And God says to you, I love you, but you are not the boss. And thank goodness we're not because we have a good parent who's gracious. And if we, being good parents, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more has the Father in heaven given the greatest gift to us, the gift of his only son, to show us that the kind of parents God raises, first of all, shows children the beauty of reconciliation with himself. As he works in our heart to be the lead repenters in our family, he softens our children's hearts to understand the gospel more firmly. Do you need to give them the story of the gospel? Yes, you need to tell it in a thousand ways. Paint it on their walls, read it in their books, sing it over their beds. Yes. But unless you are a person of integrity who practices repentance themselves, yourself, they will always see a disconnect between reconciliation with God and whatever my mom and dad have going on trying to control me or control their little world. Reconciliation with God. Second, reconciliation with others. I was at a retreat this week with a group of pastors in Colorado, and um, at the end of the retreat, we shared some of the things that the Lord had done in our life. And one, one pastor uh, said that I wrote a letter to my dad who abused me when I was young. He never told me that he loved me. He never once, this is a church planner in our, in our denomination, he never once let me know that he was proud of me. And it has taken me 30 years, plus a surprisingly sweet time, being very quiet in Colorado for three days, for me to realize that I have a father who really loves me, that I'm accepted, and that I am an adopted child. And he says, nope, I wrote that word in my journal and I scratched it out. I'm an adopted son, nope. I'm an adopted man. God has called me to be a man. And he's called me to be a man and a friend to my father and to move to reconciliation with him, however ugly and hard and brutal that's going to be. Uh, Bart Millard was born on December 1st, 1972. Some of you may know Bart's story. He was born in Greenville, Texas, where another very famous Christian was raised, very own Scott Mitchell. His father was a very well-known SMU uh, football player in Dallas. His father moved to Greenville after college, gave up the gridiron, and he settled down with the Department of Transportation, and he married this beautiful woman named Adele, and they had two children. Several years later, uh, Arthur, Bart's father, was tragically um, 
by accident run over by a semi-truck at work. And amazingly, he didn't break any bones. But he suffered a traumatic head injury. He was in a coma for eight weeks. And when he finally came home for the hospital, it didn't take them very long to realize that something was drastically different. Arthur was mean. He had a rage about him. He never laid a hand on his wife, but he emotionally traumatized her in every way he possibly could. He would intentionally break things that were dear to her. He beat her down psychologically. And over time, she couldn't take it anymore, and she did the only thing she knew to do. She left. And so the children were raised by their father. And Bart says that when he grew up, his father moved his rage from his mother's uh, uh, things to becoming physically abusive with him. And um, he just could not wait to graduate high school and get out of that house. And when he was a freshman in high school, his father was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And it was a late stage pancreatic cancer. And it was terminal. And the pancreatic cancer put his father in the hospital. And something changed in his, in his, in his father. And the days before he went to the hospital, his father began to go to church. His father began to pray. His father began to yearn, yearn for an intimacy with the Lord that Bart said he had never seen before in anybody else. Bart said he could hear his father praying for him and for his brother through the walls of the hospital room as he lay dying. And at the funeral of this man, Arthur, who once beat his son, Bart says he sat at the funeral with his grandmother, And he wept with her. And she looked at him and she said, can you only imagine what Bub, what they called him, Bub, what Bub's experiencing right now? And Bart said that at the end of my father's life, he was the godliest man I'd ever met. From the abuser to a treasured Christian. And eight or nine years later, Whenever Bart now is a singer, right, he's on tour and he's trying to finish an album and he's trying to find one final song. And he sits down with a piece of paper and he writes at the top of the page, thinking about his dad, I can only imagine. It takes him about 10 minutes to write the song that many of you know and love. And really, it wasn't the song itself that gave him the break. It was when he was at the Ryman Theater singing with one of his childhood heroes, Amy Grant, who called him on the stage at the very end of the, of, the, of the set. And she invited him to sing that song together with her. And he sang that song. And he said it was like, in his memoir, he says it was like a holy convergence happened. Because this packed house in Ryman Theater in Nashville, Tennessee, he said the people just faded away. And as he's singing this song, He looks down as he's playing his guitar and he only sees two people. His heavenly father and his earthly father. And he praises God that he had been reconciled with both of them. And parents, one of the most beautiful things that you can do is to move to reconciliation with people in your life from whom you've been estranged. And to allow your children who are watching you to see the beauty of the gospel break forth in your relationship with others. Lastly, your reconciliation with the world very quickly. Reconciliation with God, reconciliation with others, and there is a beauty in the reconciliation with the world. How? The world was subjected to futility and hope for redemption, just like we are. And it is good and right for us to be able to view the entire world, even the physical cosmos, 
as something that is worth fighting for. Now, I'm not saying let's all go hug a tree. That's not what I'm saying. Please don't hear me that. But what I am saying is what the Lord says in the Psalms, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And helping our children learn how to care for the things of the, of the physical world are important. So as you're reconciled with the Father in heaven and as you're reconciled with others, you ought to also have an eye for the kind of systemic sins that you see in the world and how we can begin to help our children not think less about sin, but think about sin with more gravity and to be able to move out into the world through their vocations, their occupations, their own particular missions to help make the world beautiful as it was in the garden. That's our calling. It's not a higher calling than the calling of being children of God and evangelizing. No doubt it isn't. But nevertheless, it is something that we ought to demonstrate for our children, the care for the world that the Lord has given to us. Because wasn't that Israel's calling? The Lord tried to impose it from the outside in in the Old Testament. This is how I want you to live. This is how I want you to treat the world. This is what I want you to eat. This is the way I want you to have an ecosystem that promotes health in the world. And it will transform you internally, except it didn't. And so God turned it in the reverse. And he said, okay, let's, inter- let's change. Not the way that people are saved. They're always saved by faith. But let's start with the locus of change being the heart in a very diversified Roman world with many different kingdoms and callings and cultures. And let's change it from the inside out so that the change of the heart bleeds out into the world so that the world is changed because of what has happened through the internal transformation of the heart. If the Old Testament is the story of God trying to get God's people's attention from the outside in, the New Testament is a picture of God's doing the exact same thing, same story, same gospel, but doing it from the inside out, causing us to bleed into the world through the gifts He's given to us. So parents, our calling is to help prepare our children for mission, and our calling is to help our children see the beauty of reconciliation. Are you able to do that? Are you willing to do that? How are we to do that? We are to do that only with the strength that Christ gives us. Christ himself said that he was the one who came in mission for us. And it wasn't his own mission. He said, I'm here to do the will of my father. He laid down his own life for the sake of his father's will. It was Jesus Christ who reconciled us to his father at the cross. He reconciled us to the Lord vertically. He reconciled us to each other horizontally. And he pulled us in together. And through the fissure of the cross, he is promising us one day that the entire earth will be made new and it will be beautiful. Oh, the Lord's vision for us as parents is so huge and so great and we need his help to do it. And we cannot begin to do that unless we recognize first that we are his children. Behold, How amazing it is that we should become children of God. And so we are. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to be able to see that upon a life that we did not live and a death we did not die, we have a righteousness that's not our own. Thank you, Father, that it is on Jesus Christ's life and death that we stake our whole eternity. And we stake our entire earthly life to cause us to be the kind of parents that God wants to raise.
Father, would you raise us to be those kinds of parents? It's challenging. It's hard. And you've given us the church to help us do that. Lord, help us not to neglect that. Wake us up. Move us to the joy of repentance. Thank you that you're with us. Thank you that you are raising us to be your children, even as we seek to raise our own. In Jesus' name, amen.